how a company behaves is not about the values that were written on the wall, but how they have acted in accordance to those values. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What dictates how we behave in a crisis? It has been fascinating to watch how organizations and the leaders of those organizations have responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. In a time of such uncertainty, our core beliefs, our values, and our, our unwritten principles are surfaced as we have to make decisions that we just never expected we'd have to make. I spent some time talking to my friend Richard Mulholland about this. Richard is a serial entrepreneur, a, a global speaker, a phenomenal global speaker, and the CEO of a presentation strategy company called Missing Link. We spoke about how important values are in a time of crisis. And then obviously by extension, how important they are at any time. My name is Mike Stopforth, and this is the One-Eyed Man podcast. In this show, I speak to people who can teach us something about how to lead in increasingly complex and unpredictable times. We did something new with this particular episode and recorded a video of our Zoom conversation. So if you prefer to view that on YouTube, please do search for Mike Stopforth or the One-Eyed Man podcast and subscribe to the channel and watch the show there. I'll be uploading previous episodes to YouTube in the near future as well um, for your enjoyment. Now, without any further delay, my good friend, Richard Mulholland. Richard Mulholland, thank you for making time to chat to me on this Sunday, although it's not that easy to know which day of the week it is anymore. Indeed, Mike. It's uh, great to be able to uh, be distracted by you. Oh, thank you. I find <laughs> you very distracting too. Richard, we had a phone call the other day that um, cascaded into a much bigger conversation around leadership in a time of you know, unprecedented uncertainty and unpredictability. I really want to slide another un into that sentence. That would be yeah. amazing. But unshaven. Um, unshaven, unprepared. I think that what happened with that conversation, though, was that we realized that a lot of the topics that we discussed, and especially around this idea of business values and leadership values, could be pertinent to a you know, broader audience. And so I'd love to start with you know, kind of a, a quick retelling of the beginning part of that conversation around the, the pivot that you've made as a business, as Missing Link at the moment, um, to address what is a rapidly expanding need for a new type of service in your space. Right. Okay. Well, so people understand, Missing Link is a presentation strategy firm. So we exist largely in the space of helping people look good when they're standing in front of other human beings and delivering a message. Uh, obviously, this all came crashing down when those those very uh, gatherings were were made illegal, or even before that, when they seemed like not a good idea. So uh, increasingly, we saw clients and customers uh, just kind of canceling their upcoming events, and the yeah. feeling was that this, you know, as a presentation company, this could be very very bad. Well, we decided not to really take it lying down, and we felt that it actually forced us to question why are our clients having these meetings in the first place. And once we kind of understood that, then um, it, it made us uh, switch gear quite rapidly. So what was that? What, what was that insight? What did you believe people were really hoping to get out of those meetings? Well, in my mind, there's one of two things, right? So you want to get people together into a room because if people are canceling 
gatherings. Then they were saying yeah. that the gathering was the most important bit. The bringing together of human beings was the most important bit. And in my mind, yeah. there's two things it does. You bring together people, that's part one, and then you make them mm -hmm. smarter, and that's part two. Now, if we're canceling yeah. those, those gatherings, we're saying that the part one, bring them together, is more important and more critical to the business, where we spend, why we're spending the real money, than part two, which is make them smarter or activate them because of the knowledge you give them. And of course, I don't think that's true. And I don't think most business leaders, when they stop and they consider it, would say that's true. So all of a sudden, yeah. it makes us think, well, then not to discount the value of having people together in the same room. But of course, if you can't do that, does that mean that we should stop? You know, if we can't go to restaurants, it doesn't mean we must stop eating. And if we consider that what happens in a conference is that we all converge together and then we consume knowledge calories, my belief is that we still require those knowledge calories. We still require the information and it's still leadership's job to Regardless deliver Regardless of the environment regardless of the environment. So we can meet in the restaurant, but we can by all means um, consume those knowledge calories. And with that in mind, we set out trying to solve that. How do we get leaders to A, see that, because that's a big part of the problem, and then B, do that. That requires a degree of like lateral thinking though, because you know for a very long time, the business that you've run has had a very specific way of solving that problem. What, what, what do you think it is that, that provided you with a platform to think differently. I mean, I know this is something that you help clients do all the time, but there's some, there's some value that underlies that way of thinking. You know, what are some of the assumptions that you had to discard to think that way? Well, we always start from the, the underlying premise of, I mean, I'm writing a talk at the moment, and the first thing I have to write is, what is my objective? If at the end of this, my audience leaves and I've not achieved X, I have failed, define X. And once we understood that the X was to activate audiences and to get more out of people, the next question was to say, well, is this still important or is this not as important as it was before, given the situation we're in? And actually, once we interrogated that, we realized, no, uh, it turns out this is highly, highly important, given what we're in now. In fact, I would argue that never before has communication been more important. And we may sure. not have to have a three-day conference, but we can absolutely have a 20 to 30-minute conference. And then I thought, well, hold on a sec. If we're not having to link space and time, if we don't have to have these two things happening at the same time, you know, maybe our clients don't have to have or they don't have time and capacity for a two-day conference, but maybe they can have a day-long conference one hour a time over, you know, seven days because yeah. they're a different, different set of constraints. So once we started looking at it um, with a new lens, we were better off. And then the, the second thing we did is we, we started with the premise that we said, what if this could be an improvement? So how would this look if we yeah, decided... Not, a, not just a replacement, but like a better right. experience. So yeah. I think it's a good starting point is to turn around and say, well, look at what it is we do and say, how could it be? What would it look like if what, how we had to do a job this week because of the situation we were in could actually mm. be an improvement? I.e., if we had to start a company that didn't have to do it this way, but wanted to do it this way, what would we do? And then we brainstormed, uh, which is a lot of fun as a team, and we came up with those those ideas, and then that's what we set to put into place. So you spoke about a really important point around communication maybe being more important now than ever before. And I think one of the things, well, there's two things that I think have come out for me in watching communication around the the epidemic, well, the pandemic. And the first is that the misinformation plague that we are all 
all suffering from or all victims of at the moment has has maybe never been more dangerous or more of a threat to humanity than it is right now. This fake news, fake information, the things that are spread online without any verification or any sourcing, that's the first thing that struck me as being um, maybe more than – sure, we've understood the threat of those things to democracy and we've understood the threat of those things to traditional news and traditional media. But now we're talking about lives being at stake when the wrong information is shared. And the second part, which is kind of linked to that, is the role leaders have in the way they communicate. And when I say leaders, I don't just mean political leaders, but I mean business leaders as well. And this virus and the fact that it is – completely apolitical and completely unbiased and has no fear or favor or doesn't worry about how much money you have in your wallet or how many followers you have on Twitter. That fact means that it, it, it's kind of the ultimate leveler from a communication perspective. And what it's doing, I think, is showing up people who, and leaders specifically, and business leaders specifically, who have an, an absence of material substance below the things that they're saying. And, and organizations that are succeeding and institutions that are succeeding in this incredibly unpredictable time seem to have a DNA intrinsic to them that others are, can't manufacture from a speech or a clever tweet or a clever ad. And when we spoke about this, we spoke about what was it that some leaders and some organizations seem to have that others just didn't, and that seems to be made more and more apparent in this moment than ever before. I don't know if thoughts around that. Sure, so many. I mean, there's so many different. <laughs> we took that in a lot of different places. I think the first thing is that um, companies companies tend to echo the words of the leaders in in many respects. So yeah. uh, how a company behaves is not about the values that were written on the wall, but is how the leaders of the organization, and those don't just have to be the bosses. They could be internal leaders. You know, in every team has somebody who's a leader who may not be the boss, but how they have acted in accordance to those values. And I would, I would believe that the companies that have acted in those great ways is because the people at the top said, hey, this is how we're deciding to act in this environment and have chosen yeah. to communicate that to their people. And, and generally speaking, as we've been somewhat trained to do, uh, people follow suit. So if this is yeah. how our leaders are acting in this, this regard, well, then this is how we will act. Now, of course, yeah. in a very, very large organization, say, uh, you know, like a big retail company, uh, how people might work in the, in the exco and how people might work on the shop floor, that's, there's too many steps uh, up the sure. ladder to, to, uh, to maybe make that pass all the way through. But I think it does come down to human beings making decisions. And in fact, I think this is one of the biggest things people are messing up when they discuss the actions of big companies. They're not the actions of big companies. They're actually the actions of an individual, a human being at the top of those companies. And there's generally one or two assumptions we can make. They're, they're doing what they think is best as led by their values. That's the first mm. assumption. And their values might be keep the company going, value for shareholder. It might not be values we share, but they're probably doing what they think is right by their values. And number two, they didn't learn this in business school either. So nobody is better equipped for this. That, that even this, the CEO of that large bank that you think is acting in a terrible way has no more training in how to act in this environment than you do. And I think we need to start understanding when we throw big companies under, you know, under attack, or, uh, that actually it's often human beings. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose 
the, the following question from that is what resources does that person have available to them to make that decision, right? And so you've, you've spoken about what, what is the intrinsic value set of the business? Or the, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, what is the culture of decision-making in the organization? And I mean, one important point I think to make around that is that every organization has values. Values aren't something you do in a brainstorming session with an ad agency and then they you know, do a really nice font and then it goes up on your wall and then all of a sudden you have values for the first time. Uh, it's not something you buy or come up with or invent. They are already a part of who you are. Coming up with a value statement is articulating the values that are already in that organization in a clear and concise and, and meaningful way so that other people can tell the stories around those values and adopt them and share them. And even that is worth a challenge. Yes. You and I had a debate around whether or not that can that can and should be aspirational or not. But I want to add I want to add that to the second part of the kind of decision making framework. So you've got values, the way we make decisions, right? So do we value people's well-being over profits or do we have to balance them? And in, in what case do we balance them? And what do we consider when we say people? Is that just our employees? Is it just the shareholder pool? Is that all of our stakeholders? Is that all of our stakeholders and the communities that they operate in? You know, because the circle of concern gets wider and wider and the wider the circle gets, the more variables you have in your decision-making process. And the second part is, all of that is fine and well. You can do the very best in terms of impact and purpose to have a really positive social impact on your decisions, but the business could die. Like it could just expire in three months, um, become bankrupt, in which case you have no platform to hire people or provide a service or continue to be impactful into the future. So there's almost that there's and I mean, this sounds obvious, but it's not. It, it, you know, you can be as generous and open and impactful and kind as you want to, but you still have to look after the jobs of the employees that are closest to you and that, you know, whatever it might be, whatever your circle of concern is. Well, and I'm worried that, because so, again, there's so much to unpack there. Let's say we go through this thing and I've lost my company. Let's say there are two scenarios. Scenario A is I've yeah. kept my company, but at the, um, I've had to uh, put my values up and made my values questionable. So I've got worked against the values that I think and I've done things that I don't think are, are correct in order to uh, uh, keep the company afloat. By the way- Can we, make, like, can we make that specific? Like, well, so I don't know, a... theft, uh, for example. Let's say I could yeah. steal something or screw a supplier or do something or that is dishonest that I wouldn't normally do. I don't think, by yeah. the way, getting rid of certain uh, employees is would go against my values. I think there's there's sure. a time where I'd have sure. to make that. In fact, I, I, that's a yeah. narrative I'd like to explore maybe later on in the show. So let's yeah. say I do something that's dishonest uh, uh, and then the company stays afloat. That At the end of that thing, I think that I would be at a net minus. Whereas if yes. I'd lost my business, but felt that I did everything I could and still had, uh, you know, I felt that I was true to my values, I think I'd be a positive. I think I would come out of that and it would be crappy for a period of time. But losing my business uh, and even people losing their jobs in the biggest swing of things is not that important because I can create something new again tomorrow and I could employ some of those people again tomorrow. Uh, and the business that I would rebuild would certainly have none of the bad legacy of the business that came before. It would be a new company built the new way. So, so yeah. uh, for me, I'm going at this and, and my kind of starting point for everything is with uh, values. Now, 
the one point in your first part of what you said is I, I'm not, I know that companies have values, but I think that's a bit of a cop-out. The only way a company can have values is if it tries to hire people, because I think human beings have values. I think companies have aspirations. So we want to be like. I think I have underlying values, but even my values, I, I've kind of, I don't write them that way. I actually, in fact, it says um, the things I want to define me. That's how they're mm. written. Uh, I think that's what companies have. And, and I don't think you can tell somebody, if you hire somebody who's dishonest into an organization that says value honesty, they're not going to stop being dishonest just because you've written that in the wall. Uh, sure. What sure. we are going to see now, though, is the human underlying values. But what I'm very curious to see is how many CEOs and leaders of these businesses that have spent millions on writing these values, how many of them have taken them, printed them out and put them on their table and said, every single decision I will make should be based on these. Because if they're not yeah. doing that, then they were a waste in the first place. If as a yeah, leader no, through this time, yeah. And, and, so, so, and, and especially I think that's if they're contradictory to what you're doing. If, if they are, yeah, yeah. So if you're being disingenuous by saying, yes, we care and absolutely the customer is first and we care about our communities, but you're acting in a different way, it's probably better not to say anything in the first place at all, right? In a time like this or otherwise. But I think there's a, there's a kind of, there's a flow to this thing that I think is important for me to express to make my case for why I think you can't invent values and why, and I'm not saying you're saying that you can, but why you shouldn't and can't invent values and why the, you should be very careful about the aspirational component of them. So I, I think that values and by extension, the culture of an organization is almost entirely determined by leadership. I used to believe that it was a collaboration between leadership and the employee base the creation of those values. And then, and then for the first time ever, I experienced what it's like to work with toxic leadership in an organization. And I realized that it can take 10 years to build a culture, but two weeks to destroy one. Like Because you'd work with some of the same people. You'd work with in both environments. And yet if everything else changed. is equal, then, then one common denominator must be around leadership. And I've said, yeah, I mean, I've been a I've made some very poor leadership decisions in my own right and in, in my own business journey and seen the, the ramifications and implication and how long lasting some of those can be, right? The ripples of poor leadership decisions can go on forever. So if a leader is dictating culture and that culture is made explicit or codified, I like the word codified, through the writing down and the sharing of, of values or purpose or whatever, it are, whatever other label we want to add to that. And our decisions in the organization are made using those as a guideline or as parameters, then the role of leadership is never, it's never extracted from that process. It's intrinsic and kind of central to that entire, that's why so often you see big organizations built with charismatic and impactful leadership, when that person leaves, no matter how strong the culture that they built was, no matter how central it was to what that organization did and how they did it, no matter how much that was a part of people's mindset and behavior, once that person leaves, it immediately starts to dissipate or degrade. Now, the question is if we should fight that. So I see a lot of organizations try to fight the the change and you say, well, no, but the, the culture is bigger than the leader. But what happens if we just said that's okay? And what happens if the new culture became the new leader that was in sure, place? Sure, sure. Or maybe we just need better leaders. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know Jim Collins, he refers to that as a level five leadership, a leader that feels the need to come in and and not need to pee on the lamppost, not to stop the momentum uh, that has been created and the good, but rather to keep it turning. Because what a lot of leaders uh, seem to want to do is to come in and say, well, this was done this way before, but I I want to make my own mark. So I'm going to press stop. Uh, turn it anti-clockwise and then start going the other way. And then the next leader comes in, presses stop and turns it clockwise again. You know, yeah. uh, Collins refers to the flywheel of good leaders are the ones who come in and say, okay, this is what's working. Let's keep this thing turning. And then let's add my yeah. own uh, things into the mix. Yeah. So one of the big topics recently, and I'm reticent to pick up on something that is the the the, the subject of so many, um, but I think it's it's, this is an example that is impossible to ignore when we talk about leadership and leadership in the time of this pandemic. And that's um, that's Donald Trump's example of leadership in the circumstance. I think Donald Trump has been a, a fascinating case study for leaders over the last while because we realized that breaking all the rules is sometimes enough to get exactly what you want out of a situation, to be successful by some measures in the world, to, to, to gain the power that so many of us would love to have or envy or model or, or idolize. And he's, he's broken every rule of what we know works in politics and in leadership um, and in, in the press and in media and in communication, and yet continues to be, by every measure that is important to him, successful, incredibly successful. But there's a sense that this, this virus and, 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 the conditions and circumstances around it might be the one thing that could dethrone that approach. And, and I don't want to make, um, I don't want to make guesses about what it's going to mean for him in an election year, if the election happens this year. And I don't want to make guesses around whether or not his continued communication and behavior around the virus is going to be good or bad for the U S right now. It looks as though the decisions he's made and the approaches he's taken have been by and large, poor and have significant negative ramifications for Americans and, you know, by extension, the rest of the world. But what I do want to say is that his style of leadership, which I would define as the uber-narcissist approach, the, 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 the bully approach of leadership, is a workable solution until you have something that is so unquantifiable and so unprecedented that that it just doesn't sustain. It doesn't stand up to the test of a virus that you can't bully or, you know, like I said, a virus that's apolitical or unbiased. So my question is, in your mind, what types of leaders do you think have done well in, in the context of a very unpredictable and very disconcerting circumstance? And what is it about those leaders in terms of their behaviors or their values or their practices that is, is kind of long-term in its ability to outlast anything that could come their way, including the world war equivalent of a pandemic. What type of leadership wins in a time like this? Shit, Mike, it's very, very hard to even... First of all, we're, we're too in it, right? We're too early in the news cycle of this to understand fully what's happened. Donald Trump yeah. could come out of this thing as the hero that, that you know, cured everything and maybe he was proven to be right and maybe not enough people died and his was the sole economy that was left and the rest of us were um, hibernating in our homes right so zombies yeah Yeah. exactly so so we're we're very early in the news cycle to make 
assumptions about that. It's almost better to look at um, maybe previous levels of, let's say, look at one of his predecessors, somebody like JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, uh, you know, uh, there was there was constantly, constantly like if we had taken Donald Trump and we'd pop Donald Trump, the Donald Trump we know of today. And we yeah. put him into the Cuban Missile Crisis. It, there is no analyst on the planet that would say that uh, he wouldn't have uh, taken it to DEFCON 1, right? Like that it wouldn't yeah. have been an all-out nuclear war. That is absolutely what would have happened because it would have been his will against Khrushchev's will and um, he would have tried to bully him there. Whereas on the flip side, after the Bay of Pigs problem, you know, the young uh, JFK kind of got egg in his face for what he was trying to do. Uh, he read that book, I think it was called The Guns of August. I can't remember who wrote it, but it was a, a lady who'd written about what happened in World War One, And she hmm. was basically writing for why we should de-escalate the situation, why we should look at saying, well, how can we temper this down? And JFK was a voracious reader, always wanted to learn, always wanted to look at, you know, how can I get better at this? I think the books that Trump would read is how to win. You know, like if, if, if we looked at Trump's library, it would be things like, how do I win? How can I succeed? He would read books like um, Never Split the Difference. Now, while I understand yeah. that a lot of people yeah. see Never Split the Difference. Everything you know, is a zero-sum game. Yes. Yeah. Even when I read that book, I thought, I'm sure he's right. I'm sure you would win. And, you know, his argument is that you can never leave, like, one hostage and say, I'll leave one hostage and I'll take one hostage. You've got to take both yeah. hostages. But I don't think that's true in many things. And I think that whereas JFK's was about um, how can I be a better leader, what can I do? And for sure, the, like, the, you could argue that the man behind was flawed in many ways as well. But it was certainly those behaviors that led to him holding back and saying, okay, how can I act in this situation? And if the one thing we've seen about Donald Trump is that he he over communicates and he overreacts. So mm-hmm. he decides, so what I actually quite liked, I liked when Ramaphosa was, President Ramaphosa was late to a briefing. Now everyone's upset about it, but I like the fact that he doesn't see Yeah, that, I was upset about it, yeah. For sure, and I get it, but then I'm thinking, then I'm thinking, well, if, if there's five more I's to dot and, and T's to cross and 13 more minutes right. to wait, to take the time to get it right. Whereas Donald sure, Trump, sure. Trump would have been out there like, oh, I think this and blah, 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 and America, blah, blah, yeah. and said all these things and tweeted 20 times. And so what happened is the trail, Donald Trump's trail of backpedaling and changing his mind and things is there for the world to see. So I don't think, I hope he would... Because I'm actually a fan of some of the things he's done. I'm not as against Donald Trump as a whole. I don't like him as a person, but I'm not as against even some of his policies that other people are. But sure. I don't as I think, said, like some yeah. of the some of the measures of success are impossible to argue against. Well, totally. Doesn't I mean, matter what your politics are. He's the CEO are. of America, yeah. right? Uh, America was a yeah. failing yeah. corporation, and they brought in a wartime CEO to try and turn that corporation around. And you'd be hard pressed to argue that he hadn't done a lot of it. However, yeah, I think yeah. this may be his death knell. So that was a very um, – I want to go back to one other thing, though, if I could, though, just to take it back a step, is um, when we talk about values, the one thing I do think is that we should be looking at this thing and saying to ourselves, I, I do believe that there's three versions of us. There's past me, present me, and future me. And yeah. um, I get to – I have to deal with the decisions that past me made. So past me throughout my entire life has made certain decisions, and in every interaction – with any but human being, past me has set the premise of what that should be. And I, I believe that I am making a play right now, for example, with you and I, for how future me and future Mike have to deal with it. And one of the decisions, one of the questions I always ask myself is, uh, if I have a decision to make A or B, I ask myself, you know, 10 years from now, what decision would future me have wished 
I had um, made. Made on his behalf, yeah. You were saying about you can't kind of make your values, but that's why I say that values can be aspirational. It's like, pardon me, if I just fired all my staff last week and said, okay, I'm going to go lean as hell. If I ask myself, how would future me as a leader look at that decision? I cannot imagine a case in which they would have said, ah, good job, man, you saved them. Mm. Uh, and, mm. and so I make other decisions. So I want to uh, I want to pick up on two things there because I think you you made two really interesting points. So the one was the comparison with Cyril Ramaphosa, who's been, I think, even widely, even in opposition circles, been lauded for his decisiveness and his leadership in the circumstance. And I didn't plan on doing this, juxtaposing the two against each other. But the the first thing I'd like to do is is understand from you. What is it about the way he's approached the situation? You mentioned, first of all, being quite deliberate about the detail and the decision-making process, even if it means you know, consulting multiple stakeholders and considering some of the, the variables in play. What else has been interesting for you or, or different or exceptional in his approach? So what I like is he made it easy for me to ascertain which decisions I had to make. So Epictetus, the Stoic, the slave, he kind of said that um, in every human being, there are two files. One file is things I have control over, and one file is things I don't have control over. So two weeks ago, I had control over whether I wanted my staff to come to work or not. I had control over whether uh, we could go to meetings or whether a client should still throw an event. Should I still get on the plane and fly to um, the US for a speaking gig that I've got coming up? You know, I had had decisions there. All those options. All those options. And all those options were distractions because they actually didn't help me solve the problem. They were kind of leaving me in a place. None of them would have been meaningful. They would have just been, how can I carry on? Whether Ramaphosa's decision in the future will be historically the correct decision. In the person I am right now, Ramaphosa or President Ramaphosa made it much, much easier for me to ascertain what is in my control and what isn't. So, for example, and what I like about it is he mitigated. I no longer have a coronavirus problem. Literally, the coronavirus is not my problem. I am in my house right now with my wife. My kids are with my ex-wife. The coronavirus is not a problem that exists for us. So Mm. now I can literally reading about the coronavirus insofar as uh, uh, 20 minutes a day to work out what's going on. But even that's probably nothing is going to change in a day that matters, probably every two or three days. Everything that I should be focusing my energy on is, okay, I'm in solitary confinement in my home trying to run a business via Zoom. The sat cable has gone down. Things are challenging. Now what can I solve? So everything is moved. Ramaphosa's leadership, and I think good leadership does this, is it very easily moves things from things that are in your control to things that are not in your control, leaving you with a very clear list of what you can act on. All the macro things were taken away from me, literally taken away from me. They were no longer an option. And for me and my business, my own small way, I find this deeply empowering. In fact, I've done this for myself now as I've written myself the the Epictetus files uh, and it's called the COVID-19 edition. And I have listed things I can control and things I cannot control. Just to be be mindful of uh, what, what is it? What is my job in all of this? So, yeah, I mean, completely agree with you. And I think it's also important to acknowledge that, I mean, one response to the decisions that have been made was they were quite draconian and didn't necessarily account for people's personal freedoms. And that's like a a fundamental part of our constitutional value system. And we must address that after the fact, but there's no point debating that now. 
Yeah, well, that's one part of it. But the other part of it is, to that point I made earlier on around the circle of concern that you have, if your circle of concern is only the top 1% of the, of the population or the taxpaying portion of the population or the employed portion of the population, then it's an easier decision to make. But if you have to make a decision for nigh on 60 million South Africans, where you're dealing with diverse economic groups, diverse geographies, different living circumstances, you have to take more extreme or more decisive measures to keep everybody safe, right? So leadership that has a a very wide circle of concern, I think what we're suggesting is, is there is reward in being extremely deliberate, being detail-oriented, being able to consider Absolutely. multiple variables at once, keeping in balance at the same time. Yes, there will be a threat to personal freedom, but at the same time, I've got to protect people who can't protect their own personal freedom, who have no means to isolate themselves from others. So, you know, there's this idea of, of really impactful leadership, being able to hold these conflicting ideas in balance at the same time, even if they are opposing ideas, even if they are dichotomous, and then going, how do I, how do I make a decision for both of these parties based on values that, that takes us in some way, shape, or form, forward from where we are right now. And then the second point you made was around this idea of planning for the long term, this future me idea, this this ten years from now, Richard. And yeah, you know, I think this is this is a bigger and bigger topic for me all the time, and seems to be something that that is a golden thread through almost every challenging situation that a leader needs to engage with. Is what is what is the time frame that I'm using? to make my decision? Am I making the decision based on a six-month time frame or a four-day time frame? Or a, uh, I mean, the old adage here is, is if you only had six months to live, how would you behave, right? I've just spoken to Richard Wright about that in our podcast. And then all of a sudden, your priorities shift and your behavior changes and everything else. If you're planning for to keep your business in business because it creates wealth and and has value and employs people and is important to the economy. If you if you're doing that with a 10-year time frame, the decisions you make are going to be fundamentally different from if you're making uh, value-based decisions from one quarter to the next or one year to the next even. Even a year time frame doesn't seem like enough. So there's this there's this challenge that we live in a world that moves very rapidly and technology has us doing more and processing more and, and understanding more on a daily basis than ever before. But because of that, almost almost only because of that, we have to think about planning for a much longer time frame, for a much longer period. And that's really difficult to do. It's really difficult to think in decade-long increments. But if you're building a business that has decade-long increments built into its DNA, then even a global pandemic <laughs> should be manageable. Well, it must be manageable. These black swan events that happen, if we can work out how our business will be after that, you know, it's very, very problematic. For me, though, it's very yeah. funny, though, you were saying, you said it quite a few times about if you're building a business to last, building a business to last. And it's quite funny because, I mean, I've had a business for the last 23 years. 
And there's very, very, there's a very real chance that it doesn't make it through this. You know, it's it's naive of me to yeah. think that all of these reinventions that I've done, and as excited as I am, like, and I think it's important to say, I am bloody, I'm so excited. I have felt more yeah. invigorated in my business in the last two weeks than I felt in the last probably ten years. And I mean, you've known me through all that time. I feel so connected to the decisions I'm making. And I am absolutely excited, even though I know that I could fail. But it's actually, that's not that important to me, that, that, this idea that, that I could fail. Like, uh, if we fail, like, I still kind of like the idea that I got the chance to, to make a good shot for it. And, and I, so I think that's one thing is that I'm not necessarily trying to preserve, well, I am trying to preserve the business, but I'm, I'm not thinking much beyond right now, hey, if we make it through this, how can I make decisions that will, A, keep my salaries of my staff paid, and B, build a better business going forward? But it will yeah. come down to, at some point, saying, well, it, you know, maybe the business must die. Maybe it's better that it does that. Um, and one of the most empowering things about right now, and funny enough, this goes back to a conversation you and I had about a different topic, and it was a line you said to me, I'm going to bring up now, that has literally, like, it recarved something in my life. But for the first time ever in my life, I have somebody else to blame for or something else to blame for me losing my business. If my yeah. business dies in the next month, it's it almost a relief. It was beyond my control. I can't tell you what a burden that is off me. So yeah. it has actually freed me up to try new things. So I could run away from that and let go and say, oh, well, this killed my business. But now I can try yeah. absolutely anything go out in flames and still look good because of it. And actually yeah. I know that, well, as long as I tried everything, it's the first time in my life ever that I feel empowered by the fact that if my business fails today, it's actually off the hook for me. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one? It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, Please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. Do you think we will think, and when I say we, I mean, this, this is a big we, it's the broader business community. Do you think we'll think differently about how we build businesses after this thing? And if so, how? Well, so the first thing is, right? So, I mean, and funny enough, we were already trying to engineer this beforehand. Uh, we've been trying to work on this for the last maybe three, four months. But getting rid of our offices, it simply makes no sense for me to have these big offices anymore. We ask the yeah. question, so why were we doing it? We're doing it to give a client an amazing experience. But are we saying that then we're limited to giving a customer a good experience by bringing them to our office and to give them a surprise and delight moment? And, well, no, of course not. Well, then why do we still need that prop from, you know, 10 years ago that was a good idea then? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think that the best thing that's happened is, and it goes back to the accelerant. This has been the great accelerator. This has got everybody further. Now, let's say we yeah. were all at 0.5. This has got us all to 0.11. I think what will happen mm -hmm. is people will drop back to 0.8. But let's talk about one thing that okay. we have fixed. So about two weeks before this all started, I wrote a post on LinkedIn about how to run better video meetings. And it seems quite mm -hmm. funny when I write, when I when I uh, refer to it now because it's inconceivable. But I was saying video meetings should always be one on one. There should never be. Somebody had asked on a group chat I'm on, which is the best camera to put in my boardroom to have better boardroom level conference calls. And there's nothing yeah. worse than having a conference call where it's me talking to a group of eight people around a rectangular table. You yeah. know, it should always be one person, one camera, and then we're all yeah. having face to face discussion. 
I think the world yeah. has now realized that that is better. So that's one very, very small micro example of how things can be done. But I think what yeah. will happen is in many ways, the companies that are the best off will be the ones who are so close to death, even possibly dying, but that when they rebuild, they rebuild from a blank sheet and they can rebuild the company they want to have. And there's no, no way. Let's say, let's say a missing link is completely destroyed. Let's say I have to let every staff member go. And all I'm left with is my reputation and a domain and an email address. Human yeah. beings will still know what we did afterwards. They'll still know who we are. They will still contact us for the same kind of things. But the business I can yeah. build then will be a very, very, very different business from the one that I've built going forward. Yeah. Basically, the companies that will change the best will be the ones that are affected the most. A company that has, not, has only gone back one step only has one area to change going forward. The bigger the knock, the more the change that you will find you'll go through. I think. So I want to take this a step further because I think some of what we're seeing is that there are organizations of a certain size, scope, reach that are finding it very difficult to manage this change, either because they don't have resilience built into the system or because they're just so big, they're just so bulky that any disruption of this scale um, it, it renders them incapable of moving or shifting or, or, or adapting. Adapting is a better word. I had this moment where I was watching watching the S&P crash and there was discussions. Actually, it was around Sassol's rapidly dropping share price and mm -hmm. that you know trading should be frozen or trading should be at the very least paused to limit the damage to this critical business in our local economy. And I'm like... I get that. I get the reasoning around why trading should be paused if you know this, the value of the stock is plummeting, and and the, the reasoning behind that largely is just sentiment and and herd behaviour, right? We know that very often markets behave almost exclusively on on herd-like behaviour, not necessarily on evidence. But then I was like, why do we never do that when it's a bull market? Why do we never pause or think about growth or think about? Uh, rapid economic exponential scale and the damage that that might do on the upside when we're building, I mean, anybody, even the most optimistic supporters and investors in WeWork right now must be terrified. I mean, uh, it, it's, yeah. I mean, this is already a business that, that's, Did you see the Bloomberg expose on it uh, about two or three months ago? No. Oh, no. But I mean, can you imagine, knowing what we know about how that business was built and the, the impacts of scale and growth on or that specific brand of scale and growth on that business at, at the time, what kind of state they must be in today? And that's just, I, in my mind, that's actually just really sad because that's a business that's not built for resilience and it's a business that's not built for endurance it's a business that's built for a sprint and the collateral in that sprint the, the, the collateral damage is the human beings that work for that organization you know or the human beings that are connected to the human beings that work for that organization to me a bull market is a lot like how people have been hiking the prices on masks you know yeah. and and glass yeah. it's basically you're paying over the value buying a company for more than the company should be bought for, for more than the company's currently. Sure. And that's yeah. why at some point it, will, it should come back to the mean, right? So the company should come back to the mean and the people who bought too expensive will lose out. And people who bought, you know, when the company was undervalued will do well. But yes, it's a very interesting 
question as to whether they, they should put holds on it when the market is doing well as well. I think that would be seen as counter-capitalistic <laughs> uh, in, in some ways. But I'm not disputing that it wouldn't be a bad thing. But I would argue that that pausing or freezing markets or stocks that are dropping is also counter-capitalistic. What's good for the goose must be good for the gander. And one should let the free market speak, right? But then you go and hold on, Mike, like we, we need to price external factors into a a plummeting market. We need to consider that there is a virus that is impacting the way people are thinking and 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 currencies are, are devaluing and consumers are freezing spend and all of these other things that are going to... But that's my, my whole point around growth as well. When we grow businesses, we do it with complete freedom and complete... There's a really nice word here that I'm not thinking of. What's the really nice word? Impunity. And we don't price in the risk of growth. We don't price in the externalities of growth. We don't price in the insurance, not necessarily literal insurance, but but metaphorical insurance that we need to weather a storm like this one, right? Because organizations that have significant fallback mechanisms, cash reserves, that haven't necessarily paid out all of those dividends ad nauseum to shareholders are going, okay, well, we might make it through this. We might be okay. We could, we could survive. And is it, there's a hardness and a, like I said, the, the only word that works well for this is resilience around how you design and build an organization like that, that seems to be absent in a lot of the organizations that we idolize and, and hold up as being examples of this is how you should grow this is how you should fucking 10x the business. Ah, right. And that's because growth growth has been the, the hallmark of success. And that's been one of my yes. biggest arguments. In fact, I've got a talk kind of based on this premise. Growth, growth for the sake of growth is the mindset of the cancer cell. Like at what point did growing to a certain size and grow larger uh, become... Yeah. Or a virus uh, for that matter. Yes. I realized last year. So last year was so weird. I was so busy. I can't, it's so bizarre. This time last year, I was speaking in, I mean, last year I spoke in 26 countries around the world on six continents. It's definitely the most depressed I've ever been in my life. And I can find yeah. lots of different ways. Like everything was so easy. Now I'm sitting in the middle of uh, this, what we're going through. And even though I go to bed every night petrified, I, I'm exhilarated. I feel the last thing I feel is depressed in any way, means or form. And at some point last year, I sat there and I said, what am I chasing? And I realized that um, and there's that quote, and I love it so much, and it's that comparison is the thief of joy. At some mm. point, I was just trying to grow and grow and grow and grow, but way beyond what I needed. Like, I'm already so happy. In fact, this board game collection was one of the uh, – the book I'm writing now is called Less to the Power of More. And this board game collection – give us a better view of it there with your – Yeah, there we go. So there's some there. The, the book I'm writing is, but the, what's happened though is I've added so many games that I now stop playing because I have decision paralysis and anxiety about which game to take off the shelf. If I had, if I had, you know, irony, a collection yeah. of a hundred nice games that I liked, that would still be way more selection. If oh, I told you I had a hundred board games, you'd think it was too many. Yeah. A thousand is ridiculous. Uh, and, um, so I started thinking about this and thinking, well, actually, I need to be on the ruthless pursuit of enough. Like, what is enough? And uh, I felt like I had to start defining. And I realized the one thing is that there's literally nothing else I need. So the, anything I buy, if I, and it's not I'm trying to be a minimalist. I think that's actually counterproductive as well. I think these people yeah. are on the growth trajectory the other way. 
uh, I think that, you know, you're now defining yourself by how little you can live off. I don't think that's necessarily yeah. the case. I think the ruthless pursuit of enough. What is the right amount of things? And funny enough, what this has taught me as well is that um, even the enough that I thought that I had is way more than I actually need. Like yeah. I, I, what I'm learning. And so, so when everything comes, when everything collapses, do I need to build? I want to build a scalable business because I want it to, to outlast these things. I want to be able to affect more people with the ideas our business has. But it's not about yeah. being wealthier or richer or uh, having more things because I really don't need more things. And again, this is so tricky because it's so deeply personal. I, I can't answer for business because business is actually just different human beings and their own personal desires as manifested through the objects they create. And bigger businesses are uh, uh, driven by shareholder value, which is such a, a – it's why I would never want to list a company because then your values go out the window. Your job is to drive shareholder growth. So that's a, yeah. that's a decision you have to make where the company grows, outgrows you. Uh, I think there is exceptions, but I don't know many. And so I want to be like I want. I'm actually looking forward for the cleansing that this prison this brings, uh, and so that I can build a better business going forward, and be a better person. And I think a lot of people are. Yeah, yeah. It's funny what what three weeks in your own home with your family reminds you of. Uh, it sounds incredibly simple, but it's um, it's an eye-opening experience, a retreat, a retreat of a different kind. Let's go back to the, because I'm curious to hear your take on this thing, and we kind of uh, glossed over it, but on the, the fact that we no longer, do you feel empowered by, in any way, by the lack of control on certain things, or does it bother you? So again, whether whether uh, the president is right or wrong in the decisions they've made, is almost irrelevant to argue right now. This is something we can we can argue later on. But the fact mm. that a decision was made, which took some decisions away from you, do you feel that's empowered you or not? Yeah. So again, on a very personal level, I think there's like there's two disclaimers that I need to make. The first one is that I, by nature and by personality tend to subscribe to authority. So I respond yeah, you well this to Simon. Yeah. yeah. It's something that my wife and I often debate because she does not uh, like authority at all. So um, if, if there is an authority figure, she'll find a way to challenge it. Whereas I'll find a way to comply in every way that I can to please that authority figure. So so that that's easier for me to do. And there's a sense of comfort in that that's rooted to my, my personality type. But the second part of it is that I'm very lucky that I – I'm not a worrisome person. For whatever reason, I haven't traditionally worried a lot about things that I can't control. I worry a lot about things that I can and about the impact that I have on those things and how I can do a better job of producing value out of the things I can control. But I don't worry about stuff I can't control. Uh, so, so for me, like worry is a useless idea, but stress is, is useless. Stress is something that I experience when I'm trying to create value from the things that I can control. Right. Distress is not good, but stress is, is pretty good. So, so this, as an example, has been a very good experience for me. They've, even though I'm not a warrior and even though I'd like to subscribe to authority, there have certainly been moments for me that have been very dark in the last week where I think just kind of feeling the weight of what this means for humanity in much the same way as I imagine it must have felt like if you were – in the midst of a world war, but not necessarily participating in it as an, you know, kind of as an active uh, serviceman or woman, you just feel the weight of what it means for humanity, the size of the thing, and the, and and when the whole world is united by one single preoccupation, one, you know, 
unified invisible enemy there is there is a very powerful sense of humanity and my burden for humanity's well-being that kind of comes through that so i have felt that and in a big way and i think one of the ways i've i've had to combat that or work with that is, is to try and filter the information that I allow in and get back to the things that I can control. So whether it's my own well-being or the time I'm spending with my kid or, you know, just those tiny little wins in the circumstance that I can control translate to all having conversations with friends like you. I want to just pick up on something that because I, I think it, it speaks to this, but it also speaks to the conversation we were having around building companies for the long term and companies that are resilient in their DNA. Pick up on a word that you mentioned earlier on that some of the listeners might not be familiar with, but that is, I think, central to your message to the world and to the business world. And that's the, the topic of, of Legacide. And you, you've written a book called Legacide, which is phenomenal. And I mean that. And you've you speak a lot about the idea of Legacide. Can you can you talk us very quickly through what Legacide is and why maybe now it's it's more pertinent an idea than ever before? So I really do believe that now is it's it's the, it's almost the time that the book was waiting for, right? And it's, it's quite funny because I'm busy with the second edition and uh, I've been quite far and I had an audio recording booked for the second edition in two weeks, which I won't be able to do. Yeah. I really do believe that this is because this is the purge we needed. So let's go back to what the underlying premise was. We have 21 tanks and there's a business that had run a lot of, uh, we, we thought it was going to be an innovation lab for big companies and we we're going to come up with great innovative ideas. But very quickly mm-hmm. what we realized in organizations is that it wasn't about the new ideas. And the kind of cornerstone realization was that in an established organization, innovation doesn't happen when you start doing something new. It happens when you stop doing something old. So... Mm-hmm. Things were done when when our businesses were started. All the processes and systems we put away into our business were were put in place in order to solve a problem, to either fix a problem or fill a gap. And at some point, we stopped focusing on the problem we were solving and started focusing on the solution we'd created. And we became organizations that were defined by the solutions we created, not the problems we solved. And what this has forced us to do in a very, very big way, take my business as an easy example, is... Well, the solution we provided was a whole bunch of tools to make delivering a presentation to a live audience more effective. But the underlying problem was to activate audiences through better personal communication. So as soon as we realized that, we went back to the problem we were trying to solve. We could slay a lot of the legacy, a lot of the solutions we'd bolted on that were very meaningful. And what I've come to realize, and part of the reason I wanted to, to write a second edition was because there's a line I've been using more and more in my talks of late, and I think it's pivotal, and it wasn't in the first one, and it's this. Acknowledging these mistakes is not saying that you were wrong. It's, it's saying that at some point you were no longer right. And this is deeply empowering because a lot of people, like if I had to challenge you, if I was, if I was a subordinate and I worked at one of your businesses and I came in and I said, you know, Mike, I think you're wrong about this decision you were made. That's, that's like quite a big thing. And people, I'd find it very difficult to do that. However, if I was to, to come into your office and said, and said, Mike, you know, when you first created X, I thought it was actually, when I, if I look back at the reasons behind that decision, I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. And I just want to say, well done. However, applying that very same logic to that same problem right now, I think given the world we're in and this new solution that exists, maybe that idea is no longer right for what you're trying to do. And maybe there's a new thing that could be right for now. That's a very different discussion. And I think leadership is letting your people know 
that, guys, you can challenge me. You're not saying I was wrong. You're saying that I was no longer right. And the best thing is, yeah. like, where we are now, you know, I, I, years ago, I was in Japan with Paul Jacobson and Simon Bengel. And I remember, so I can't remember who told us, but somebody said to us that Coca-Cola tested stuff in Japan because they could learn in one year there what took a decade to roll out anywhere else because the change in trend cycles was so fast. You can learn more in the next 21 days running a business in this country or any country in the world because something that was true yesterday, literally three days from now, they, what I said to you last week, that with the information I had, that was the best idea that I had and I could come up with. Three days later, it's okay for me to say, okay, that seemed like a good idea, but now we know this. Now this has happened. I am wrong. Let's move on. Yes. This yes. is the great yes. accelerant in so many ways. You can build your yeah. culture out how you behave in this situation by telling your people these things. Zombie. <laughs> Rich, it's been phenomenal to talk to you as always. And this has been a really helpful extension of the conversation that we had originally. And, and I think we've touched on a lot of things that maybe we didn't really elaborate on in that phone call that have now become a lot more clear to me. And I just, I'm very grateful for your time. How do people get more rich if they, if they want to spend a little bit more time with your content or, or with you? Uh, the easiest thing is go to getrich.af. Uh, and then that will take you to one of those link farms. And then you can, you know, I've been quite prolific on LinkedIn at the moment, writing lots there. I'm really, enjoy I'm really enjoying the platform of LinkedIn. Thank you. Yeah. I really love LinkedIn. I think it's um, hugely valuable. I think we need to have an argument with Simon Dingle about this. Really? Um, but it's also fun to have a really, a company I really like. I spoke at, uh, spoke yes, for them last company. year twice, once in Dublin, once in Chicago. And I just thought they were like such cool people. I thought, wow. Finally, I found a company I think I could work for. Like if I had to be bought yeah. out by somebody and work in a company, it would probably be LinkedIn. The people yeah, are so couldn't cool. agree with you more. But I'm, I'm finding the platform of very value, of, and especially during this, by the way, I find the highest, I go, to, I go to Twitter for very, very quick updates on like if I want to see if something's happened, if there was an uprising or news or something like this, and I spend one or two minutes on. I go to Facebook literally for the lulls. Like there's nothing really there for me. It really, really, I, I check my notifications and that's about it. And then I yeah. go to LinkedIn and I settle down. And each time I go to LinkedIn, like Mike Perk from Heavy Chef recently wrote a, an article, for example, that stole 20 minutes of my day about um, uh, uh, Admiral Nelson. And uh, like, I just thought like, oh, this is so great. Like people aren't Bold. putting crap yeah. there, you know? And so I'm really, really in enjoying that platform. And speaking of platforms, yeah. I just wanted to return the thank you and to say thank you for letting me be on this platform. I've really enjoyed the shows you put out so so far. I've not listened to Richard's one yet. Um, I've just finished. I've got about one minute left in Simon's, which I think was a cracker of an episode. Really? Like, Thank yeah. you. That's great. I wasn't. I didn't feel great about it, but uh, Simon seemed I to enjoy it. So that was the really loved part, Simon's yeah. episode. I thought it was really great. Thank you me. know what? It, you maybe maybe you're very close to it. There was a lot of things he said there, and I've heard Simon say things in different ways. But I thought there was a, the way he articulates the, it the now is getting better and better yeah. and better as he yeah. as he goes on, and he's found a space, and he's, I think he's found what he's trying to say with this. And I just thought I find it to be massively valuable. So that so I'm he's really privileged to get yeah. a chance to be here. Dude, you're a legend. Thank you so much for the time. Give Zombs a hope for me and we'll, we'll chat to you soon. Brad, brother, take it easy. Cheers, bud. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker 
deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is a king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.